0: Put your hands together and welcome the OG, Pastor Dew. I don't know what OG stands for. Oh, God, maybe, I don't know. See, you turned to the book of Revelation, didn't you? Um, we're going to talk today about Suppression. You know, a cough suppressant is something you take to hold a cough down. It puts something down. This is what suppress means. I believe that there is a spirit in the world that suppresses the good news of Jesus Christ. It holds down the gospel message. It presses down the opportunity for people who are lost to come to know the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a spirit of suppression. I believe it affects the political realm. I believe it affects the educational system and I believe it affects the religious system. It's a it's a it affects attitudes, it affects beliefs to somehow some way suppress what God wants to say to the world in a prophetic voice in these last days. So we're going to talk today about this suppression, because that's what we see in the book of Revelation. The apostle John, one of the most influential uh, apostles, he was the youngest of the apostles. So when the others got old and tired, he still had energy. He was still preaching the gospel. And the government didn't like it because he had an influential voice. When Apostle John spoke The people listened They believed he had something to say And they wanted to hear what he was going to say And the government didn't want to hear that Because it was An opposition voice And they didn't want to have an opposition voice They wanted to silence it So they took this attitude Lock him up Lock him up Because if we can get him locked up someplace It will silence the voice And we won't have that voice out there So they arrested him, and they sent the Apostle John to the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was a prison colony. That's where they put the political prisoners. Whoever had a voice that that the government, the present government, thought was negative, they just arrested them, and they sent them over there. So the Apostle John, who's who's got amazing insight about God that he wants to communicate to the body of Christ, He wants to communicate to a lost world and bring them into the body of Christ, is silenced by being put on this prison colony. It's kind of like Alcatraz. Even if you broke out of prison, you couldn't get off the island. There was no hope. So he was there on the Isle of Patmos with his voice suppressed can't communicate, can't say what God wants to say through him. He just feels stifled. Maybe you felt that, or you wanted to communicate something in your heart to somebody in your workplace or somebody in your neighborhood, somebody you you cared about. You wanted to say it, but you just felt something inhibit you and hold you back and silence you. That's that spirit of suppression, because if the good news gets out, Nobody knows what's going to happen. Only God knows what will happen if the good news gets out and gets planted in somebody's heart. So there's all this, even in the land of the free, this liberty that we have in America, there's this spirit of oppression that holds us back. And Just don't ruffle feathers. Don't uh, create an opposition. Don't say anything that would make them not like you just let them be them and you be you and let's just keep Christianity in our churches and we'll worship God on a Sunday morning and forget about him the rest of the week. It's, a, it's an attitude, it's a spirit that holds back the kingdom of God. And John was experiencing it's a great example here in the book of Revelation. But the good news is you can't keep God from speaking to you. And the world and the government and the educational system and the religious system cannot keep God from speaking to you if you reach out to him. So John was locked up under this spirit of oppression. And let's just, let's just read this and I'll jump right into it. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I think, I think as I came in the door I heard Adam ask you to turn there. And we're going to start reading in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. We're going to stop our reading right there. That's kind of a introduction to what we're talking about. Notice he said it was on the Lord's day. We assume that to be Sunday. That's the day we set aside as the Lord's day in our, in our world, in our culture. He said on the Lord's day I was in the spirit. That is significant. I was in the spirit. We live a natural life and we're in the the natural, flesh, uh, human side of making decisions. What am I gonna have for breakfast? What route am I gonna take to work? Uh, what, how am I gonna schedule my work day? What am I gonna have for lunch? We have to make these routine decisions every day. That's all in the natural, that's all in the, in the flesh. We don't even, we, we may thank God for the food, but how many of us ask God what we're gonna have for lunch? Don't we just head for the fridge and put it together or go to the restaurant? or the cafeteria, wherever you work. But he says, I was in the spirit. That is significant. He went, he, he, it was like he was lost in this connection with God that was overwhelming and God was showing him a series of things and it was like an explosion of understanding in his, in his mind. I was in the spirit. Now there's another way that could be translated It could say, I was in the Spirit, and it was the day of the Lord. Because what what he's describing in the book of Revelation is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's return, when everything comes together, comes to a close. So, in verse 19 of chapter 1, it says this, Write, therefore—this is the the thunderous voice behind him— write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This is the table of contents to the book of Revelation. This is the outline that he uses. I want you to write down what you have seen. I want you to write down what is now. And I want you to write down what is yet to be in the future. Three different sections. Write it all down. And I'm so thankful he obeyed. Aren't you? Because now we have the book of Revelation that gives us insight that in a lot of ways confuses us. And in a lot of ways reveals the, the, the truth and the power of God to our lives. And I want us as believers to walk in the Spirit I want us to be in such a place that God's Spirit can speak to us at any time. I got this problem on my job. Lord, how do I solve this problem? What strategy can I take? What should I do to help this person, this situation? How can I do that? And as we ask God those things, I, ought, I believe God ought to be dropping those thoughts in our minds. Amen. That's walking in the Spirit, not in the natural. Yeah, we go to school and we get educated on how to do certain things, but there's a An element of wisdom we have to have with that knowledge. And I believe God gives wisdom to know how to apply what we know already. So write it down. And and it's three categories. So let's look at these three categories one at a time. And what what we're doing here is we're summarizing the book of Revelation. This is what God can do even in the middle of your suppression. When Satan wants to hold us down, God can still reveal himself. So here's the first category write what you have seen. For the sake of time, I don't have time to, to read all these scriptures, but I want to summarize it. So in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 1, what he had just seen was a revelation of the glorified Christ. He says, I saw, I saw in my in, when I was in the Spirit on the, the Lord's day, I saw seven lampstands. What's a lampstand? A lamp stand is what you put a lamp on to hold it up, to elevate it. There's a reason we hang light bulbs from our ceiling and not lay them on the floor. Because if it's on the floor then everything creates a shadow and it diminishes the light. We hang it up high so it distributes that light all over the room. These are lamp stands. They hold the lamp up so the light can be seen so it can be distributed. This is what Christianity should be. This is what every church uh, in every community should be. We should be a lampstand. We should be elevating the light so everybody can see it, not hiding it inside where nobody can see on the outside except maybe through the stained glass window. We should be distributing it. So he says, I I see seven lampstands and in the midst... One like the Son of Man. Now, who do we know is the Son of Man? It's Jesus. So Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. And John sees a description and he writes down what he wrote. And he writes it down by the leading of the Spirit. This is the inspiration of the Spirit we talk about. He saw something, and he chose his own words to write down and describe what he saw in this vision, the resurrected Christ. And he said, I saw this person, one like the Son of Man, completely clothed from the top to the bottom. Well, aren't we all clothed this morning? Doesn't everybody have some kind of clothes? We have different styles, but aren't we typically covered? Yeah, but this is by the Spirit he's speaking to us. There is something symbolic about him being covered up, about him not being naked, because nakedness in the Bible always represents sin exposed, out in the open, uncovered, no defense. He's completely covered, and then it begins to describe how he was covered and what he looked like. He was wearing a golden vest, of course, gold is, uh, at that point, it was the most valuable metal. They got some alloys now worth, worth more than that, but wearing gold, a golden vest covering his chest. He had hair white like wool, white as snow. We typically don't think of that about Jesus, do we? We typically think of him, you know, when he went to the cross, he was 33. Now, there's a few people with white hair at 33, But most of us that have white hair this morning, we we were in our 50s, 60s before that really white became more prominent than the natural color. But here he is with white hair, white as snow. Snow doesn't come down brown or blonde, comes down white, describing purity. He's got eyes like fire. They see right through you. This is what John's writing that he's describing. His feet was like brass glowing in the furnace. You know, you melt, melt that metal down to create brass. And when you melt it down, it's just shining in there, glowing. He had a voice that roared like a waterfall. How many have ever been to Niagara Falls? If you've been to Niagara Falls, you know you, you always want to go up close. You always want to get as close as you can and watch that water come over or go down underneath and watch it come out over that opening. Doesn't it roar? How does water make noise? It just roars as it's going over that edge and down underneath. The sound carries for a long way. His voice roared like a waterfall. In his right hand he held seven stars. So we're probably not looking at a physical thing. We're probably looking at a At a symbolic, figurative thing. Seven stars in his hand. His right hand, not his left. His right hand. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. Offensive and defensive. Coming out of his mouth, representing the words that he speaks. He cuts to the heart. And his face glowed like the blazing sun at noonday. Couldn't hardly look at it was so brilliant. This is what John saw. So God told him, or the angel, whoever was speaking to him in that roaring voice told him to write down the things which you have seen. And he wrote it down. And we have it to look at today. And I don't know about you, but when I read through that it just gives me a a few goosebumps. It's a little bit of the magnificence of God. We're getting a glimpse of Him. So they may be able to silence your voice, but they cannot silence God's voice yeah. as God reveals what he's really like to us, to us humans. Then he moves from write what you have seen to I want you to write which is now. Right now, things. And so then that's the second point: write what is now. And this covers chapters two and three. So it starts out with just a couple verses, and now it spreads into two chapters. And what he says here is he says, I want you to take your pen and I want you to write a letter to seven churches. The same seven churches we just read about a little bit ago uh, earlier. The same seven churches in the same sequence. This one first, this one last. So God's got an order to what he does. He doesn't always tell us what the order is until after the fact. But everything is ordered. I believe everything in your life is ordered. Oh, there may be some disorder in your life but I believe God's ordering the things in your life. And sometimes negative things happen that you think are out of order because that has to fill the gaps for there to be order in everything else. In other words, sometimes we have to learn lessons the hard way. How many here have to learn lessons the hard way? Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be my pattern. I'm not an easy learner. So seven churches. He writes to the first church, the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a major church. Some uh, Bible scholars believe there were many as, as many as 20,000 people in the church at Ephesus. There wasn't any facility, any building, any coliseum where they could put 20,000 people all at the same time at that point in Ephesus. So the church had to be divided up into segments, into small, smaller groups for there to be any kind of an assembly. I believe that each of these seven churches represents a different period in church history. Now I know a lot of you don't have any interest in history at all, but if you don't understand the history of how we got here, you don't value what we have when we're here. Amen. Good word. So The history of the United States gives us real insight as to why we're in the situation we are today, why we're the kind of people we are, why we're the culture that we are. And the history of the church going back 2,000 years also gives us a pattern, an orderly system of how the church has grown from the early days to where it is today. I believe each of these churches represents a church period. I believe that the church at Ephesus represents the apostolic period where those 12 apostles that, uh, or 11 actually, once Judas hanged himself, 11 disciples that Jesus hand-trained for three years and launched them out, and he told them to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. They were the apostles. That lasted for a generation. And the world was turned upside down, Paul said, with the gospel that went out to people because they were hearing some good news for the first time and they were grabbing a hold of it and it was changing their lives and the world was changing around them. It was the apostolic period. But in that letter to the church in the apostolic period, he says, I do have something against you. You're doing the right thing, but you've left your first love. We all have to pay attention and ask ourselves, could he be saying that to us? Are we doing what we did before? We're doing all the right things, but we've left our first love. Could there have been a time in our life when we were so passionate in love with Jesus, we would have sacrificed anything, gone anywhere, done anything for him. And now we're settled into our American routine, our Western lifestyle, and we've left our first love. What he says to that church is, I want you to repent and go back and did what you did at the first Go back and redo those things. If you were more involved in prayer then than you are now, go back and get into prayer again. If you were much more active serving and investing in other people's lives back then than you are now, go back and do what you did then. That's the only way to reinvigorate that spiritual walk that you have. Go back to your first love. And then he goes on to the second church, the church at Smyrna. I believe this represents the persecuted church period. Because the church went through a period of years where it was intensely persecuted. We've heard about people being thrown to the lions because of their faith and being put up on poles and and covered in in tar and set on fire for everybody to see. That's persecution. We don't know what persecution is here in America. We we think it's persecution when somebody snickers at us or steals our can of pop because we're Christians and they want to make fun of us. We don't know what persecution is. Though they knew during the persecuted period. You know, you know what Jesus said to the church? Do not be afraid to suffer. There's a reward for obedience. There's a reward for holding on to your faith. There's a reward for staying faithful. Don't be afraid to suffer some things. Then he goes to the third church, the church at Pergamus or Pergamum. This represents the next stage in the church development. It's what we call the imperial church. This is where Constantine had that vision, that revelation in the sky to, to, to go forth in the name of Jesus, conquer in Jesus' name. And after he won the battle, he recognized it was Jesus that had set it up. So he made Christianity the official religion of the empire. And everybody was required to convert to Christianity. Sounds like a wonderful thing. And it probably was wonderful in its beginning. Certainly was for Constantine. But, you know, you can you can have a genuine relationship with God that changes your family and all your kids go haywire. You're only one generation away from losing that that faith-filled walk that you have. So just because the next generation didn't stay faithful doesn't mean Constantine didn't have a revelation from God. I believe he had one. I believe there were other people that had insight. God was speaking to them. He's always been speaking to people individually. The problem with the imperial church is when they required people to become members of the church and be baptized into the church, uh, they had to do that before they could have any government office, before they could have any kind of influence, before they could be successful in owning land or anything. They had to be a part of the church. And it, re- it, it, it influenced people to get baptized into the church without any faith. So it was an intermarriage between the government and the, and the religion connected them together and diluted both. Then, the, then he goes on and he writes to the church at Thyatira. The church of Ty- Thyatira, if you read in the language, if you look at the terminology in this letter, he's writing uh, about the, the period of church history that represents the medieval period. The the knights in shining armor, the Renaissance period with an, a, an awakening, uh, you can just you can just see that in the text. The problem with that period of church history is it opened the door to a lot of false teaching. And back then there was only one church, and a lot of false teaching that compromised and allowed people to go on with their sin as long as they came and said some prayers and donated some money uh, for for the new basilica we're trying to build. As long as you did some action, we'll give you this tolerance that will forgive your sin. Then moves from that into the next church, the church at Sardis. I believe the church at Sardis represents the period of church history we know as the Reformation period. It was when a few people, we typically recognize Martin Luther. He was one of those leaders. There were many others. He took this list of 95 theses, 95 things we think are wrong with the church. These are things we believe. Nailed that list to the door of the church at Wittenberg where he was a a Catholic priest over. And they were all against common practices in the established church. Which had little by little by little gotten rottener and rottener and more and more immoral till martin luther says that's enough that's not the way christians are to live their life and he took a stand we call that the reformation and a mass exodus out of the catholic church people came out which caused civil wars and kingdoms all over europe between protestant kingdoms and catholic kingdoms it was It was a battle for power, for influence in the name of the church. There really wasn't that much religion about executing hundreds of people. That's what happened. The Reformation period. And because so many people came out of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church began saying to itself, you know, we got to do something about this. We've got, we've, there's got to be some kind of a reform. So they began what we call the counter-reformation. And within the Catholic Church, there was a reform. And so the Catholic Church you see today isn't anything like it was back in those days. It's entirely different. From the church at Sardis, he goes on, he writes, writes to a church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, you know, means brotherly love. Good name. He writes to this church, And this, obviously, from the text in in the letter, it represents the period of church history that, that we could call the church in revival. I believe our church is a part of that church. I think this is running today. It's a church in revival. And he says to the church in revival, I have set before you an open door. There's one thing we can't refute. God has set before us in the Western world an open door. We can preach the gospel in any flavor we want to. There's some places we can't take it, like public schools. But any kid asks you a question, yes, you can. You can respond to any question they ask. If If you're right now in a public school, it's good for you to know that. You can ask your teacher anything, and they have the freedom to respond to your question. He said, I've set before you an open door. I believe we live in a day and age where we have an open door before us that won't always be open. Mm -hmm. And I think we Christians have to take this seriously and ask of ourselves, what do we do with this open door? And then the next letter he writes is to the church at Laodicea. And obviously in the context, it's representing an apostate church which creates a problem for us looking at a sequence because Jesus is going to come back for a glorified church, not a dead, emaciated church. So how do we go from a church in revival to a dead church as the church of Laodicea? I think the solution to that is these two final churches run parallel. There's a church in revival and right across the street there's a church dead in a doornail. Got all kinds of system, it's got all, all kinds of uh, doctrine down in print so they can't go wrong. But they deny the power thereof, and nobody's lives are being changed. It's a, the, the church at Laodicea is a church that compromises to make people happy. Whatever you want to do is okay. I know the Bible says this, but you know, this is, this is modern day, that was old fashioned. So it's okay if you live like that. It's okay if you do these things. It's a church that tries to make people happy. But it doesn't stir people up. So we got seven, seven periods of church history all outlined here in this little package of these seven, uh, these letters to the seven churches. And, and as I read that, I get this uh, majestic picture of God and what the church is, God's move is for ordinary sinful people like you and I who have made a mess of our lives and through the Holy Spirit he brings enlightenment and we rise up and we become what we need to be. Amen. And We become the church of Jesus Christ that's a, that, that's a light up on a hill and there should be seven churches in every town or more that are a lampstand proclaiming the good news. Some are going to use country music on Sunday morning. Others are going to use contemporary. Somebody else is going to use 200-year-old songs. And somebody else doesn't sing at all. And we all get to decide where I want to go and worship and be a part of the lampstand God's placed in my community. A couple things in common with all these churches down through history. uh, It's the same gospel. The gospel hadn't changed. How it's proclaimed can be changed. We can package it in different ways. We can make it teaching. We can make it inspirational. We can drive it home with an evangelist. But it's the same gospel. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we could be redeemed. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's the same Holy Spirit. All down through church history, the same spirit that fell on the day of Pentecost has been visiting people privately. Not a big mass thing because the church wouldn't tolerate it. It was a spirit of oppression, suppression. But privately, people connected with God, and the same Holy Spirit was leading them. And each each of these generations of church history had the same oppressive spirit trying to hold it down so that it didn't win the world to Christ. That's the things that are now. You can't, they can hold you down, but they can't hold down the revelation God wants to give us. If we press into God, he'll give us this revealing. He'll give us the insight. He'll show us like he did the apostle John. John may have felt like he was suppressed and hopeless and it was the end of his ministry, but God was giving him a whole new glimpse of God and his majesty. So let me go into the third part, which now covers a huge span of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. These are the things that shall be hereafter. These are the future things that are yet ahead. In the book of Revelation, he's got a series of seven sevens. God is an orderly God. There's not a bunch of sevens and one six. There's sevens. God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan in place. First is a a series, maybe not first in order, but he gives us a series of uh, three seven judgments. The first is a scroll. You know what a scroll is? It's a book before they had binding. They would take a, a big sheet of paper and they would begin to write. And they would handwrite write because they didn't have printing presses or computers, so I had to handwrite write that whole letter, big, long thing. And then when they got done writing it, they would roll it up. You could have multiple pages and roll it up in a scroll. And then the loose edge, they would take a candle and drip soft wax on the edge of the loose edge of that document And then they have a ring with a pattern in it that that was symbolic. It was uh, uh, how they would sign it, how they would authorize it. And they would take that ring and press it into the soft wax, let it set up, and then take it out. That paper was sealed. You could not get in and find out what's on the inside without breaking the seal. This scroll had seven seals on it but nobody knew what was on the inside there was something powerful on the inside but nobody could access it because there was nobody worthy to get in and john began to weep he just felt something in the in the spirit he felt something emotional draining from him because he couldn't get in and nobody was worthy to get in and then somebody said look here's the lamb and Jesus steps into the picture. Amen. And everybody's tears dried up because here is the one who is worthy yes. to open the seals. Mm-hmm. And he goes over to the first seal and he breaks it, peels it back. And when he does, out is poured a judgment upon the earth. And then he pours out, then breaks open the second seal and another judgment is poured out on the earth. And then he opens the third seal and another judgment is poured out. And he goes down through all these seven seals and each one as it's opened another judgment is poured out on the earth and the world gets to be a miserable place because they have rejected God. Now he doesn't wait till the first seal has been spilled out and then open the second. It's still spilling out when he opens the second and it begins to spill out. And the first and the second are still in effect on the earth when he opens the third. So this is an increasing judgment. The world is getting increasingly bad. And when he opens the seventh seal, out comes seven trumpets. Angel has a trumpet. And as each angel sounds the trumpet, another judgment comes out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven judgments come out. And out of the the seventh trumpet, More angels come out that are carrying bowls or some kind of containers. King James says vials, some kind of container that's got another judgment in it. And one at a time, they all pour their judgments out. Seven judgments, three sets. That's 21 judgments, and they all increase. It gets worse and worse each time because God's wrath, which is right now being suppressed, it's not going to be suppressed anymore. And God begins to pour it out because of the world's rejection. And in the process of those judgments coming out, this influential man rises up. Powerful man, persuasive man, able to rally people together and come up with compromises and build relationships and he puts together a global empire and all these independent countries now are all going to find some way to instead of spending all their money defending themselves against one another let's just find a way to live peacefully together. Doesn't that sound like an idealistic dream? Let's, let's not worry about military, let's just worry about building relationships and we'll have one global economy, everything will be fine for everybody. Sounds so idealistic, but we've never been able to achieve it or even come close to it. This guy pulls it off. He gets everybody's trust, and he forms alliances. He takes over a global military. He builds an army of 200 million soldiers. Now, what's the population of the United States? What did we say last week? 300 and some million? 1 million. 320 million. Here's 200 million armies. Two-thirds of the United States. That's a big army. Speak different languages to get them all together on one common cause. He also controls the economy. It says that he requires everyone to take a mark on their hand or their forehead which is a counterfeit of what the Jews had to do, where they would require to, uh, th- to uh, wrap the, uh, the word of God, the Torah, around their wrist and put it on their hand or around their forehead, put it on their forehead and strap it on. It was a counterfeit of that. Everything Satan does is a counterfeit. So the Antichrist requires that. And you can't buy or sell without having that mark. I can see how we're getting there. And then he's got so much influence, he's able to bring peace between Israel and the Arab nations around it. Till the Arab nations agree to permit Israel to build a temple on the Holy Mount. And there is space enough right there to do that without tearing anything down right beside the mosque of Omar. They could put this up. But of course, they wouldn't dare start now. This guy's got influence. He's a peacemaker. And when they finally get the temple constructed, it takes them three and a half years to do that. When they get this temple finally constructed, this world leader that we call the Antichrist or the Counter Christ, he's, he's, he's a counterfeit of everything Jesus is, he goes into the temple, he goes to the holy place, he sits down and proclaims himself to be God. And when he does that, that's the fulfillment of that. That's as far as God will allow man to go. And God says, that's it. That's enough. And it inspires the second coming of Jesus Christ, who comes back on that white horse, brings the the saints of God behind him. And he comes back to say, this is enough. And that 200 million man army, under the influence of the Antichrist, rises up, pull together, and they come together for a great battle against Jesus Christ and his saints in the valley of Megiddo, what we call Armageddon. And the last final battle takes place there, and you know who's going to win that battle. Yes. That's right. Amen. And that begins a millennial reign where Jesus Christ himself sits on the throne here on this earth for a thousand years, putting down all resistance for it says he rules with an iron rod. What do you think an iron rod means? You know, nobody's going to resist. He's going to put down every rebellion. He's going to put down every ideology that comes along. It's going to be silence for a thousand years. There's going to be peace on the earth because, but why would he have to rule with an iron rod? Why would that be necessary that it tells us that? It must be there will be people who resist, and he just suppresses that rule. Then there's the judgment, and people are given rewards for how they've lived their life. Then, coming down out of the heavens, comes the New Jerusalem, 1,300 miles across. 1300 miles wide 1300 miles high I don't know if that's a pyramid or if that's a cube Bible doesn't tell us This is a big this is a big thing I mean this this takes up a huge portion of the United States so we have some perspective on it comes down out of the heaven and then we read about the new heavens and the new earth which by the way will have absolutely no toxic waste dumps. God's going to clean up the mess we've made. He's going to clean it up. And the book of Revelation concludes in chapter 22 verses 12 and 13 Jesus is speaking and he says, look I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Notice, it's according to what we've done, how we've we've behaved with the information we had. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If you didn't know, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, the Bible was written in Greek, is Alpha. And the last letter in the Greek alphabet is Omega. I am Alpha and Omega and everything in between. He's the beginning and the end. This boggles my mind because this all comes out of John being suppressed. Taken out of his mission field. Locked up so he couldn't speak. But God could speak and John could write and he could pass what he wrote on to somebody else who passed it on to somebody else who passed it on to somebody else. And we sit back here in 2018 and we read about this revelation and what he's talking about the things that you have seen, the things that are now, and the things which shall be in the future. And it just boggles our mind that God would reveal himself like that and people not get it. I mean, how long has the book of Revelation been around for people to read and understand it? But there is a spirit of suppression. So even when we read it, We don't understand it because Satan does not want this truth getting in us that God is the overseer of all the governments. God is the overseer of all the time, all the churches, all the religious system. He's got his hand on it all. And what I need to do is reach out and connect with him. And I can't just sit back And keep what I've had to myself. We are lampstands. We have got to let our light shine. We have got to speak out. We have got to communicate. Because the world is under a spirit of suppression. And they're not going to figure it out on their own. Somebody's got to tell them. Somebody's got to take them by the hand. Somebody's got to coach them. Somebody's got to disciple them. Somebody's got to lead them along the way. I wonder who will do that please don't think you're paying me to do that because I don't have relationships with those people. You have relationships with those people. So I, I just want us as we're wrapping this up, this, I know this was a different kind of message and I hope I wasn't over anybody's head. I hope I wasn't, you didn't choke on what I was trying to say. I hope you got a, a little bit of a glimpse of the majesty of God that was revealed in the book of Revelation for us to read And for us to understand, no matter what happens, no matter what I read in the newspaper tomorrow, God's still in charge. He knows what he's doing. Let's stand together. Um, We have an after party that we're having right down the hall here on the left. Now, let me just explain this before we dismiss. Uh, The reason we have an after party is for me to connect with people that uh, are new in our church, for me to get to know you a little better. So it's targeted for you. We've got coffee, refreshments. If you want to, if you have something you want to say to me, that's where I'm going to be. Please don't stay away just because it's for somebody else. uh, But if you come down there and I'm talking with somebody else, it's the new people that have my top priority. They're the ones that it's all about. So if I give you the cold shoulder, that's why. Not because I don't want to hear from you. Uh, but if you want to share in the refreshments, feel free to come down there. That's what it's all about. Just, and if you bring a guest sometime in the future, I expect you to bring them down there and introduce them to me when we have that. We do it once a month. So I just kind of wanted to lay out the expectation of why we do that. Okay? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, you've given us a big... Glimpse, You've set before us an open door. And you said to the church at Sardis, the church that was dead, you said, behold, I I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, come in. And Lord, you've given the church of Philadelphia the, the authority to be the guardians of the door. So Father, help us to be receptive to all kinds of people that come in and help us to not just be receptive, but help us to go get them. That's the great commission, to go into all the world. So, Father, help us to do that, to be the people you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 We've got prayer partners here that will agree with you in prayer. I'm going to be at the after party. Go with God. He loves you.